From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The reason the Russians didn't invade Ukraine while Donald Trump was president is they didn't need to invade Ukraine. Putin's grand aim here, uh, aside from, you know, I mean, it's rebuilding the Russian empire, but the most important tactic is to degrade NATO. That's Jonathan Carl. He's the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Carl has covered every major beat in Washington, Congress, the Pentagon, the State Department, and for over a decade, the White House. As a White House correspondent, Carl had a front row seat for the Trump presidency. Now, he's written a book about Trump's chaotic final months in office. It's called Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. Today, Carl joins me to discuss the latest developments in Russia's war with Ukraine, the state of the Biden presidency, and the craft of reporting. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com starts. You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business, with no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started. Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Bob, who asks, Will or would you have former AG Barr on your program since he's on the book circuit? That's an interesting question. In some ways, I might say, as used to be said on Saturday Night Live, the question is moot because I don't think Bill Barr would come on my program because I think he knows what I think of him and he has better outlets and venues to hawk his book. The other answer I would give is, even if he was prepared to come, I think not. I think that Bill Barr in many ways is, uh, to use Ellie Honig, my colleague Ellie Honig's words, a total two-faced BS artist who is trying to rehabilitate his image, sell books, make a bunch of money, when duty called for him to make some of these statements and give some of these revelations to the public and to investigating committees, whether the panel that conducted the impeachment inquiry or the current January 6th committee and the self-aggrandizing way in which he talks about uh, what he did in his eyes, I guess, heroically and courageously, not my view, is something that shouldn't be in the book, but should be uh, under oath and with sworn testimony. And as the old saying goes, it's a day late and many, many dollars short. I've also observed him in the last few days talk about his book and talk about his experiences at the end of the Trump administration. He dodges tough questions. He tries to make himself out to be the hero. He outright lies about various things, including lying about whether or not 
he got a letter from Bob Mueller complaining about the summary that Bill Barr put out back when the Mueller report was still under wraps. It would also not interest me to promote his book and help his sales by having him on the show. And by the way, Joyce Vance and I discussed the Bill Barr book and our views of him and his tenure as AG on the Cafe Insider podcast this week. But there's one point I, I forgot to make. And that is, when you compare the Bill Barr of today and how he talks about how he spoke truth to power to Donald Trump, and you go back and you look at his resignation letter, obsequious and unctuous, as I think I called it on Twitter, there's a particular passage from it that rankles me more than any other. And it's this. Back in December of 2020, he wrote in the letter that was made public, quote, I am proud to have played a role in the many successes and unprecedented achievements you have delivered for the American people. But it gets worse, in my view. Barr goes on to write, Your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Ah. Relentless, implacable resistance. And Barr would have you believe now that he is the resistor? Give me a break. This question comes in an email from John, who writes, Do you think they should speed up the confirmation process for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson? I am concerned we will lose a red state Democratic senator by death or resignation, and control would be given back to Mitch McConnell, who would undoubtedly pull more dirty tricks out of his tattered hat. I don't know that his hat is tattered, but he certainly would pull dirty tricks out of his hat, pristine or tattered or otherwise. So, you know, I was a little bit worried about this because you never know what happens uh, on earth, and you never know what happens to mere mortals and senators are mere mortals. And there was one senator who has been out for a period due to illness. I have been concerned that Joe Biden took a number of weeks to pick Brown Jackson, but it looks like we are now on track. Hearings have been scheduled for March 21. That's just a few days away. Typically they take four days. You'll have opening statements on day one and then rounds of questioning by various senators. So by the end of the week of March 21, the hearings will be over. There'll be an opportunity for senators on the committee to present questions for the record those are done very, very quickly, turned around very, very quickly. There tends to be a vote in the committee or an attempt to have a vote in the committee the following Thursday when the Judiciary Committee usually meets. They can also meet on another day to expedite further. Often what happens is the opposing party can request a delay of one week as a matter of right. At least that used to be the rule and I believe is still the rule. But you're talking about a committee vote within a couple of weeks of the hearing. And then uh, I know, uh, because I know him well and I know his public statements, Senator Schumer, the majority leader for the Democrats, is going to want to get this vote on the floor as quickly as possible. So we're talking about a hearing in a week and a half, the votes within a week or two of that, floor vote probably immediately following. So heaven permitting, nothing will happen to any senator and no one will switch parties. So maybe I'm naive, but I think it should be a smooth ride for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Some Republicans will say nasty things and they will try to make an effort to sully her. There'll be dozens and dozens of votes against her, maybe as many as, you know, the mid to high 40s. But I still remain confident that she'll be confirmed. It won't be a squeaker. We won't need Vice President Kamala Harris to break the tie. The three Republicans who voted for her before, I think there's a very good chance they will vote for her again, including Lindsey Graham, who has made some negative statements and had a different candidate that he preferred from his home state. But maybe this is naive, but I feel good about it. This question comes in an email from Daniela, 
who writes, Dear Preet, is it significant that the January 6th committee suspects Trump committed crimes related to the insurrection? Do you think the committee will be able to get the documents from John Eastman? Will this get DOJ to investigate? So these are all good questions. Uh, just to review for folks who haven't been following it closely, there is an argument, a dispute going on between the January 6th committee. I mean, I guess they have a lot of disputes going on with a, a lot of different people and a lot of potential witnesses. But one that's been important and has been a focus in the past week has been the dispute they're having over a subpoena for documents with respect to John Eastman, who in fact is a lawyer so far in good standing and was an advisor to Donald Trump in the days leading up to January 6th on January 6th itself. He had a big role in trying to convince people in Trump's orbit and Trump himself to get Mike Pence to overturn the election. Now, obviously, the January 6th committee is not a prosecutorial agency. It can't bring an indictment. It can't bring a criminal charge. And so the relevance of that committee asserting in court papers their belief that there's evidence in support of the idea that Trump committed crimes, namely violation of two identified statutes, obstruction of Congress and conspiracy to defraud the United States of America. That's not because they're planning to bring a prosecution because they can't. Those statements are in service of the committee's argument that the documents and communications between Eastman and others is not subject to the attorney-client privilege. And the reason for that is there's something called the crime fraud exception. And the crime fraud exception basically says if a person, whether he's a lawyer or not, is engaged in communication and the provision of advice to a client, and it's about a future crime where they're acting as co-conspirators to try to commit or plan some crime, obviously the attorney-client privilege is not appropriately applied. And to make that argument, they've set forth the case for Donald Trump having violated these two statutes. And by itself, it's not super significant, except in a larger context, it's very, very, very significant. So the direct relevance of it is whether or not the committee will be able to get the documents from John Eastman, there was a long marathon session before the assigned judge yesterday who seemed very skeptical of the attorney-client privilege argument, not just because of the crime fraud exception, but also because of this idea that some of the advice that John Eastman was giving Trump was not really legal advice, but political strategy, which is not covered. So there are multiple bases on which the judge may overrule the objection by John Eastman and direct the provision of those documents to the committee. But the larger context is you have a significant, respected congressional committee that is going on record, and not just from their perch in Congress, but going on record in court filings, stating their belief based on a review of lots of documents and interviewing of a lot of people. So it's not a by-the-seat-of-the-pants analysis. They are stating their belief that there is substantial evidence that Trump committed a crime. Now, there is another prosecutorial agency called the Department of Justice, who we've all been wondering about. What are they doing? Are they doing something covertly that we don't know about? Are they waiting in the wings? Are they waiting for a referral? And they're sending a loud and clear message for the whole country and the world to see, and certainly for the Department of Justice to see, that there is a basis for believing that Donald Trump committed a crime. Maybe it's not chargeable. Maybe you can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But to me, the upshot is it's sufficient enough to warrant the opening of a thorough investigation with respect to the violation of these two statutes. Will that itself get DOJ to investigate? I don't know. But I think it's something that's significant, and we'll see what the DOJ has done. We may learn that at some point, uh, and see what they do going forward. This final question comes in a tweet from someone who uses the handle at Ms. Misdemeanor. That's very cute. Hi, Preet. 
Need some lighter talk to take my mind off of everything going on. Just wondering how you eat your M&Ms, i.e. dump them out and organize by color and eat them one by one, or indiscriminately picking from the bag as you go like a monster. Thanks for all of the great content. Well, I hate to disappoint you, Miss Misdemeanor. <laughs> I think I'm a bit of a monster. First, I should make it clear that I never eat regular M&Ms. I think only monsters eat those. I eat peanut M&Ms. They're the best. They are, to me, the only true M&Ms. I'm a big fan of M&Ms, although I've been trying to cut down during, during the pandemic. But typically, I will open a bag, stick my hand in, and as you put it, indiscriminately pick them out as I go like a monster. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I've loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly and right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn five bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet five bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and response. Gaming resources. Jonathan Carl is one of the most widely respected journalists in Washington. Before joining the White House Press Corps, he was a senior national security and foreign policy correspondent for ABC News. Today I speak with Carl about Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. 
Plus, Carl gives an inside look at what it was really like to cover the Trump presidency. Jonathan, Carl, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's hard to believe that you haven't been on yet. I mean, what what took so long? I I think I think <laughs> I, I, I remember interviewing you on the podcast that I used to have, and you were getting ready to start this thing. We 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 got it was we, a while ago. You know, I think I think we assumed we couldn't afford your fee. <laughs> it is it is steep. It is steep. So I I appreciate that. So you know, we don't want to insult you by lowballing you, but now you know we're rolling in the dough. <laughs> it's huge. So we've been able to to pay your fee. You have a I guess not so new book out, Betrayal the final act of the Trump show. We'll get to that and some of the scoops in that book in a little bit, but I should note for the audience that we are recording this on Tuesday, March 8th, around what some people would refer to as happy hour. Not a lot to be happy about. And I was telling you before we started taping that there are a lot of developments today in a bunch of different areas, and in particular, with respect to the invasion of the war in Ukraine. And I just, I want to get your reaction to a couple of things and then we'll take a step back and talk about politics and, and a whole bunch of other stuff because you're a great brain to pick. I caught you on this week, this past Sunday morning, and the debate, part of the debate that I heard you having with other members of the panel was why has the Biden administration not yet decided to stop buying Russian oil and gas? And you seem particularly perplexed by that. And I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like, you know, it, it seems odd and weird given that we're stopping everything else why wouldn't we do that? And as of a few hours ago, before we started recording today, Joe Biden announced that he's indeed doing that thing. Was that inevitable? I think it, I think it was. Uh, first of all, it's been interesting throughout all of this that Congress has actually been, it seems to me, leading on this. And there was great momentum in Congress uh, for cutting off uh, Russian oil and gas. But, you know, what my, my point on Sunday is... Biden has rightly said that these are stiff sanctions. Uh, these are unprecedented sanctions. I guess the closest comparison would be uh, the way Iran was cut off, you know, and, and, and the moves that essentially brought Iran, brought Iran to the negotiating table under under President Obama. But, you know, here you, you talk all these all these sanctions, the, the swift sanctions, the sanctions on individuals, the sanctions on Putin himself, on Putin's foreign minister, on his on his uh, on his spokesperson, uh, on, you know, various oligarchs close to Putin. And yet you don't sanction the very thing that drives the, the economy, <laughs> the Russian economy. I mean, this is, you know, and as, as it was that logical, as McCain famously said, you know, it's a it's a. Basically, a gas station with uh, with nuclear weapons. I mean, it, I mean, you know, we're going we're gonna to station. Is, is, is that kind of gas station self serve or? <laughs> it's what it's <laughs> however they tell you to get the gas. You yeah. know? Well, in Jersey, yeah. you can't you can't. I don't know. If people know this. In New Jersey, you cannot pump your own gas. Full service only. It's it's it, it is it is survived. But you know, the, but the good thing about the Jersey gas stations, they also have nukes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> if, you, if you knew that. But is, is some of this, you know, a cynical gambit? on the part of Republicans. I'm not sure if it is, so I'm putting the question to you. It was very easy for a lot of Republicans to say, stop buying gas and oil, and then lie in wait for gas and oil prices to rise at the pump in America, and then say, look, Joe Biden has caused the price of gas to go up. Is there, is there a certain kind of gamesmanship going on there or not? Well, I think the movement was genuine, and I actually think Zelensky has been a major force in all of this and pushing 
uh, for a tougher response and having Congress kind of lead the way and pushing Biden uh, towards a towards a tougher response. I mean, remember Zelensky did did the Zoom call where he had you know uh, hundreds of members of of the House and the Senate on. Um, and making a direct appeal, you know, most prominently for a no-fly zone, which I don't think is going to happen. But I think that there's a, there was a lot of political pressure because of the enormous appeal of this, you know, heroic figure that has arisen uh, out of Ukraine and captured the world's imagination. But that said, gas prices are going up and they're going to go up more. And you can be sure that the Republicans will use that in the midterms. And uh, what they'll do is they will say, not that it's because we cut off Russian oil and gas in large part because Republicans were in the front of the line pushing for it, but because Biden hasn't done enough on domestic production and they'll run that whole game, you know, that whole playbook. So, yes, they, they, they will use this. <laughs> they, they will they will conveniently fail to mention, uh, you know, Republican complicity in this in this move to cut off Russian oil and gas, which is going to be the biggest factor, let's face it, uh, in rising, um, you know, in, in, in the further rise in, in the price of oil. Yeah. Are, are you surprised that not just official sanctions have had some effect and are going into effect, but also all these private companies seem to want to get on the bandwagon and assert themselves as being against the invasion of Ukraine, including most recently, a couple of hours ago, McDonald's announced that it is ceasing operations, at least temporarily, in Russia. And it made me think of, of, of an old memory. In 1993, my family and I traveled to Russia and we went to the McDonald's in Moscow. I think it was fairly new. And I will tell you, it was the cleanest McDonald's I've ever seen before or since. You know, it's that's really funny because I went to that McDonald's yeah. uh, in about the same time. It was either 93 or 94. It was crazy, <laughs> right? And, and when that McDonald's opened, it was a tremendous symbol. And you remember the long lines around Red Square. Oh, yeah. Uh, to, to, for people to get their hamburgers. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was a real symbol of communism is ending. Russia, the Soviet Union still, um, it, it opened in 1990. Is uh, you know is opening up, and if you want, you know another thing I thought of as I saw that news was Tom Friedman's uh, famous you know you know proposition that he put out there that no two countries uh, that have a McDonald's had ever gone to war, and and he suggested this was something, and then and then you know he, he, that was about ninety six when he said that, and I think at the time it was actually true. Obviously, it wasn't true for very long. He he amended it some years later and said, okay, well, no two countries with a Starbucks, you know, maybe. And I think that, that what is driving that is the thing I mentioned first of all is the way Zelensky has kind of captured the world's imagination, but also the sheer horror of what Russia is doing and the lack of any, any pretext. I mean, what, why? It just doesn't make any sense. One thing that is just so horrifying about all of this is, is, is the way that Putin has actually shut things down inside Russia, the flow of information inside Russia to a degree that we didn't even see during the dark days of the Soviet Union. I mean, we still have ABC News. We still have people in Moscow but they can't report. Every major news organization has people still in Moscow, but they, because of this new law that right. says essentially if you report the truth on Ukraine, you could go to jail for 15 years. I mean, that doesn't affect what people know in 
in Russia about what's going on, but it affects our ability to know what's actually going right. on in Russia. But you also have, of course, the fact that the Russian people are, you know, I mean, you can't entirely cut off information in, in, in this uh, in, in this time, but but you can cut off a lot of it, which is actually which is actually disconcerting. That that was, in fact, the second development I was going to ask you about. The New York Times just in the last few hours, I think, announced that it was pulling staff from Russia because of the new law. One of my employers, CNN, I believe, as of a few hours ago, said that they're not pulling people yet out of the country, but they're standing down and reporting until they analyze the consequences of this law. And I don't know how much analysis you need to do, but it sounds like it's something that is a pretext for putting anyone, Russian or from the West, in prison for saying anything that Putin doesn't like, and that includes the truth. So it's kind of a mess. And do we really think that he wouldn't put, you know, American journalists uh, in, in, in jail? Um, I mean, that he would hesitate for a moment? That would have been unthinkable three weeks ago, right? And, and, I, and I think of like... You mentioned CNN, Tiananmen Square, and you remember, you remember the way all the news organizations, you know, all the all the major television networks were there uh, for the summit. The tanks came in; it was all being broadcast, and then the Chinese shut everything down. But again, this is different. This is this is this goes further than that. This is a threat to throw people in jail. In fifteen years in Russia is a massive, I mean, I mean, 15 years is a big sentence anywhere. You're, you're a former prosecutor, but that's a sentence reserved for high crimes in Russia. I mean, do you think he wants Putin? Does he want to have people who are American? I mean, there's that WNBA player. Do you think he, he wants an excuse to have Americans or Westerners in custody as some kind of future bargaining chip? You know, I, I, it sure seems that way. I mean, this, uh, they clearly have got a, you know, they've got a, they've got an Olympian uh, now in in prison. I think that they're going to use, they're going to use that for all it's worth. Yeah. The the other thing you mentioned, this is a development that I wonder if you have a reaction to. It has been the the considered wisdom, I think, of a lot of people, experts. Certainly, it's the view of people in our government that a no fly zone that some folks have been requesting and advocating for would be too direct a confrontation with Russia, and it would implicate you know, a potential war between NATO and Russia directly. And so they think it's a bad idea. But over the last day or so, there's a growing set of experts, you know, former government officials and and people who are policy experts who are advocating for a limited no-fly zone. Do you, do you stand by what you said a minute ago that you think that can never happen? Well, things are moving very quickly. Uh, we also, the other major development today we had was the, the polls, I think, surprising uh, American officials. I think it's surprising people at the White House, at the Pentagon, at the State Department, uh, the Polish government saying that they're going to turn over all their MIGs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To uh, to Ukraine. Oh, actually, to the United States to give to Ukraine. So it's like this. It's a bit of a process that we have to. I don't know how those planes are actually going to get get to Ukraine, uh, but they're going to turn them over to Ramstein Air Force Base. And then be- I think by truck convoy. Truck convoy <laughs> to the border, and then, and then you can actually put a truck convoy to good use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we've got some of those around D.C. right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, we can borrow some from Canada, too. But, you know, the issue with the no-fly zone is, and I don't know exactly what a limited no-fly zone looks like, but a no-fly zone means that you also, you know, you, you, obviously it means direct, you're going to shoot down Russian jets that fly over Ukraine. You're going to shoot down Russian, Russian missiles. Those are a little easier to shoot down. But 
to do that, you're going to most likely need to go after air defense systems that are on Russian territory. I mean, so it really does lead rather quickly to a wider conflict. So bad idea, right? Even though it sounds good and your heart aches for at least some kind of limited no-fly zone, I think what people are talking about is what they've referred to as a corridor for humanitarian aid and for evacuation, but the sky doesn't have lanes, right? So I don't know how that works. No. And I don't want to say good idea or bad idea. You listen to what Zelensky says, and he most recently you know, made the case to the, to the House of Commons. You see these purely civilian targets. And he mentioned, you know, schools and hospitals are getting bombed. How can you not? You have the power. You in the West have the power uh, to, what's the phrase he uses? You know, basically clear the skies over, over Ukraine. But it's complicated. And, but here's the thing. Where is Putin going? And is this ultimately going to lead to a wider war with the West? Is this ultimately going to lead to, God forbid, World War III? I can't even believe I'm, I'm talking about this. Well, that's a great question, Jonathan. What's the answer? You know, Biden in his State of the Union address said, you know, took all the tough line on Russia, but he also very clearly said, Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. No way, no how. It's not going to happen. But in the very next line, he said, And as I've made crystal clear, the United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. So is Putin going to hit supplies coming in from Poland? Is Putin going to decide that he needs you know, a corridor, uh, to use the phrase again, to use the word again, to Kaliningrad and, 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 and decide that he needs to, you know, he needs to take action in Lithuania for the same insane reasons that he has taken actions in Ukraine. And are we going to ultimately end up in a conflict, a military conflict with Russia? And if, if we did, heaven forbid, you know, you look back to this and think, you know, we let Ukrainian cities get leveled and we did nothing militarily about it. And now we're already in the conflict that we thought we were avoiding. These are tough decisions. <laughs> but, you know, the U.S. has resisted, at least in one respect, the sort of saber-rattling by Putin when he made the move to put his nuclear arms on, on higher alert. I don't know what the phrase is for that in Russia. A lot of people thought that the West would have to go tit for tat and cooler heads prevailed. And we did not change our DEFCON level. So does that give you some more optimism that we won't take any bait? Well, it, I think it's not so much taking bait. It's what happens if he actually does move on a NATO country. It is not inconceivable. It is just, I mean, it, in, in some ways it looks like it may be inevitable. By the way, on the nuclear question, I don't know if you, did, did you ever see the thing that Oliver Stone did? Uh, he did a series of interviews with Putin and and he released them in in 2017 but the interviews were actually before the 2016 election. Did mm-hmm. you ever see this? I didn't see those, no. It's it's some of the strangest um Does Putin admit does Putin admit that he killed Kennedy? Yeah, I I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's possible that Oliver Stone has spent more time, more one-on-one time with Vladimir Putin than any other American because he spent a lot of time. He had total yeah. access. It was hours of interviews, but there's a a really surreal scene. And by the way, Oliver Stone is essentially agreeing with him on 
everything. You know, America's the problem and all. I mean, it's 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 really quite astounding. But and, but is he doing that to draw Putin out, or does it sound like that's what Oliver Stone believes? I think that he, you know, I think that he, he and Vladimir Putin both agree that that America has been a force for evil. I mean, in the way he was steering the conversation, he was essentially in agreement with uh, with Vladimir Putin. But there's I never like that Oliver Stone. <laughs> I want to put that on the record. Well, he made some great he made some great movies. Uh, let's let's be clear. Born on the Fourth of July, you know, it's a great movie, and 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 you know others. But uh, Platoon. So he he actually asks Vladimir Putin, "Have you ever seen the movie Doctor Strangelove?" And Vladimir Putin kind of looks at him like, uh, "No." And he's, "You got to see it. You got to see it. Stanley Krupp, it's brilliant." And they actually sit down together and watch Doctor Strangelove. And have this conversation about the use of nuclear weapons. And of course, Putin is watching Dr. Strangelove and he's like, aha, that's the way the Americans operate. Now I know. Um, but like Mystery Science Theater 3000, Putin version. It's actually really worth watching in a very twisted way because the way you, you can kind of see Putin thinking about nuclear weapons in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that's quite frightening. So that's bad. This is not reassuring, Jonathan. No. <laughs> I saw somebody try to come up with a good theory about this to, to, to reassure us, which is Putin is so far away from people at the end of that big, long table yeah. <laughs> uh, because he wants to stay alive. He doesn't want to catch COVID, you know? Yeah. Um, so if he wants to stay alive, you know, nuclear war is not a good thing. I mean, if you... Uh, yeah, I don't think 20 feet helps you from, from the radioactivity. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I, think, no. I think it's 20 feet. 20 feet in washing your hands yeah. for 20 seconds isn't going to do the trick. Final development that I can think of from today in Ukraine or, or the, the ones that come to mind is the fact that the Putin government has announced there will be no conversions of the ruble, the Russian currency, to any other currency until September at the early. So he, he's basically, in the course of two weeks, destroyed the ruble. Can you comment on that? And then the more important question is, do you have any sense from your sources and other experts about whether they're holding out any actual realistic hope that Putin has hurt himself so badly in Russia that someone does something about it. First of all, on, on the ruble, I, I visited, traveled and reported from the Soviet Union on several occasions uh, during the, uh, the mid nineties. Uh, and then, and, and then again, uh, you know, during, uh, during Putin's first term. And I remember seeing, you know, the times when the, when the ruble had, had crashed and when it was hard to get, anything in, 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 in Russian shops. And then, and then remember seeing under Putin, um, you know, Yeltsin into Putin, the kind of revival of a Russian economy. Um, you know, my, my first visits there, it was, it was, it was literally hard to get a meal in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Lord knows the rest of the country. And, um, this must bring back such fear on the part of the, of the, of the Russian people, um, who have seen prosperity and then have seen, an economic downturn far beyond anything that, that, that we've seen, maybe with the exception of the, the Great Depression in the United States. But I'm very confused about this because I see reports that seem to conflict with each other or conflict with common sense. On the one hand, I see this reporting that suggests that citizens in Russia who have family members in Ukraine and who correspond with them or talk with them on the telephone don't believe it when the Ukrainian relatives say, we're being invaded, we're being bombed, civilians are being killed. Because the Russian folks believe the propaganda. They're not seeing any of that news for the reasons we discussed a couple of minutes ago. So they're not blaming Russia. They're not blaming Putin. On the other hand, 
when your economy tanks and certain credit card transactions are not able to be done, and you can't exchange your ruble for foreign currency and all sorts of other things that are going to be the consequences. And you can't of buy a Big Mac. You can't buy you can't buy a Big Mac. How do you, based on your reporting from the country and understanding the, the culture of the country a little bit, how do you think people are computing those conflicting things? Well, th- there was a, another thing today that came out. There was a uh, a, a poll of Russian citizens. The Washington Post has has written this up. It's it, it you know our our, our polling of folks believe it is a um, a fairly reliable poll, um, and it showed that fifty eight percent of Russians approve of the operation in Ukraine, which sounds like wow, for a solid majority of the Russians are approving of what's happening despite all of what you just said. Fifty eight percent is actually really low. I mean that's even low in the context of. Uh, military operations in the United States that proved to be very unpopular eventually. I mean, think about the... The the war in Iraq was hugely popular initially. hugely popular. So if at at the opening stages before, you know, the full magnitude of what's going on is really felt, there's there's only 58%. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how accurate this poll is, but like I said, it's... Our polling folks say that this is a reputable outfit and they've looked at it and they think this, this is a good poll. So I don't know. I mean, you know, part of it comes back to our discussion of of the lack of information, except for information that's blatantly false, reaching a lot of Russians. Um, but again, you can't you can't clamp everything down as you as you said, Russians living in Russia have family members who are living in Ukraine. They, they may be telling them they don't hear it, but they're hearing what's happening. Um, yeah. I mean, you just hope and assume that at some point, given how isolated Russia is going to be and is becoming that you can't shut out logical conclusions among the citizenry of Russia. Can we talk about politics in our own country as it relates to what's happening in Ukraine? So as recently as 10 days ago, or a couple of weeks ago, there were Republicans, including the leader of that party, Donald Trump, who were lavishing praise on Putin, saying, among other things, who cares what happens in Ukraine? The word savvy and brilliant were used to describe Putin. There's been a bit of an about face on that. Is there any political consequence that's going to befall anyone who was saying positive things about Putin two weeks ago? I think that it's interesting that that phenomenon that you just described wasn't widely present on Capitol Hill. So it was it was Donald Trump, you know, Mike Pompeo. It was uh, people like Tucker Carlson and other other you know Fox personalities. Not elected um, members of Congress so much, you're saying? It really wasn't much uh, elected members of Congress. I mean, there were some. I mean, I mean, you know, I don't know if you follow Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, no, who's uh, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's apparently very influential. Who'd that be? I, I think she's on the Foreign Relations Committee, or no, maybe she's not on any committee. I don't think she's on any committees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, but the the Republicans in Congress largely did not echo, almost, almost entirely did not echo uh, that kind of crazy talk. Uh, the question is, I think the larger question is, does Donald Trump pay a price for that? Now, Trump has pivoted to now, you know, making the case that none of this would have been happening if he were president. And and the, the crazy line he puts out there and says that he's the only president in the entire 21st century that didn't see an, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Every other uh, president in the 21st century had the Russians invade Ukraine. But you know what? I mean, 
The reason the Russians didn't invade Ukraine while Donald Trump was president is they didn't need to invade Ukraine. Donald, Donald Trump, if reelected, was going to withdraw from NATO. Yes. Putin's grand aim here, uh, aside from, you know, I mean, it's rebuilding the Russian Empire, but the most important tactic is to degrade NATO. He wants to degrade NATO, wants to push NATO back. Donald Trump was doing it. Donald Trump was doing it, not to mention browbeating uh, Zelensky and holding back military aid uh, that, that had been approved by Congress, all of that. So they, the, the Russians, Trump was doing just fine in, in serving Putin's interests. You know, going back to the show I, I saw on Sunday that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, one of your colleagues at ABC, Chris Christie, former governor of New, New Jersey, said something like, if only Biden had followed Trump's policies with respect to Russia— this wouldn't have happened and we would be in better shape. And I don't know that you got the chance to fully respond to that. So please, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I I, I did blurt out like the, the the Trump policy, you know, I mean, the, 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 the guy, the guy that held back the javelins, the guy that, you know, beat up on on Zelensky and, and you know, was trying to get him to take up dirt on the on the Bidens. I mean, come on. But 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 it, it, it's absurd because, first of all, the point that Christie was making the, the, the little element of truth uh, is that under Trump, we were providing arms, defensive uh, arms uh, to the Ukrainians. And uh, that's something that Obama had resisted. And it's uh, something in the first part uh, of, of, the, of the Biden administration that he had resisted. But that, first of all, that wasn't Trump's policy. That was the Congress there's this distinction that people keep forgetting and that Trump elides also is that, you know, various parts of the U.S. government were taking strong action in both statements and in deeds towards Russia, all of which seemed to chafe at Donald Trump. Yeah. And, and, and look, Trump had people in his administration. I mean, they're, they're hard to find a bigger Russia hawk than John Bolton, who was his national security advisor. Uh, you know, Pompeo talked tough on Russia, certainly Mattis. Uh, you know, th there were people in the Trump administration, the boss, <laughs> the boss wasn't there. And, but, but it's also don't, this was not just about providing javelins. There was a bit, there's a bigger issue, which is the way that, that Trump and Putin seem to be in lockstep. I mean, that's overstating it to a degree, but on NATO, I mean, Trump was constant was raising questions about Article Five. Remember, remember when he said Montenegro? I mean, those guys are really nasty. Do we are, do I really we're really going to defend them if, if they get attacked? Uh, he wanted to pull troops out of Germany. You remember the um, and I, I I mentioned this in 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 my book the when when he decapitated the, the, the civilian leadership at the Pentagon right after the election, fired Esper um, and, and fired. Uh, several other senior officials at the Pentagon, you know, put in uh, Chris Miller, sent, uh, you know, General McGregor over there as the, as the, as the top advisor. The, his assignment was to get out of Afghanistan, to get out of, get, get U.S. troops out of Germany, get U.S. troops out of, out of Africa. That was, that was the, that was the simple basic thing, get them all out. So he was doing exactly what Putin wants to have happen. He, he, he wanted, and and he was he was stopped by some of the people around him from going all the way, but he didn't believe in NATO. By the way, he thought that NATO countries paid dues. Did he, did he know what NATO stood for? Do you think? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not sure about Trump, but there was a there was a disturbing poll I think among American college students, and some giant percentage of them 
couldn't state what NATO stood for. I don't mean as a matter of principle. I mean just NATO. Like like North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They didn't know what that was. Yeah. So you're showing off now, Jonathan. <laughs> <Just yet>. <laughs> <laughs> Vassar College did well by you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk about how you think overall the Biden administration has handled this? And in particular, in contrast to the withdrawal of troops out of Afghanistan that a lot of people were critical of. I'm not a foreign policy person, but I was a little bit critical of that based on what I saw as a, as a private citizen. Do you think they learned something from that? Like, what, what are people telling you about their own feelings about how this is being handled compared to the last sort of significant crisis? I mean, Afghanistan was a disaster. And the only thing that mitigated the politics of that disaster is that he was essentially continuing precisely the policies of Donald Trump in, in, in the way he handled Afghanistan. But this is, this is, I think that Biden has, has done a, uh, a much, you know, very good job on, on a terrible situation. I mean, it's hard to say he's done a great job when we're watching, you know, Ukraine getting leveled. As an initial matter, he was right. Yes. Right. I mean, almost one of the most important things is to actually predict accurately that that was one of the failings in Afghanistan. And here people didn't believe him and Blinken and others, when they said there's going to be an invasion, people like, oh, I don't think so. Even the Ukrainian people didn't think it was going to happen. So even Zelensky said it wasn't going to happen. Even Zelensky, yeah. So that that's a big kick in the pants in a good way for your credibility if you end up being right. I mean, it's unfortunate. I think they would have hoped to have been wrong, and that would have been different fallout. But but they made a very you know what was a unconventional decision, which is that they saw the intelligence and they made a decision to share the intelligence. And to show exactly what Putin was doing to describe how he was going to do it with stunning accuracy. Not just the invasion itself, but the propaganda campaign surrounding the invasion. You know, the kind of the whole false flag idea, this idea that, you know, Ukrainians were committing a genocide um, in, uh, in the East. And he, he called it, he brought it to the attention of the world. I think that you see the way he brought the Europeans on board, the sanctions that, that we didn't think, again, not all, not all, oil and gas. Um, but I, th I think that Biden has handled a, a horrible situation and shown some real leadership on it. And the other person, again, that you have to, you have to recognize is, is Zelensky. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, and I wrote about that recently. I think it's, it's kind of a marvel to behold. Speaking of the political consequences for Biden, I don't know if there's another poll that matches this, but did you see this recent poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist that has Biden's approval rating jumping up yep. to 47 points, so it's up eight points. His Ukraine handling up 18 points to 52%. I know it's not an ABC poll, Jonathan. Yes, yeah. Well, what like. do you make, what do you, do you credit that? Yeah, it, it sounds entirely, uh, it, it makes sense. I mean, he's he has shown some decisive leadership in a way that we hadn't seen. I think that you saw it in the State of the Union, um, when he was applauded by Republicans as well as Democrats, there was there was a hell of a lot of unity in a time when we don't see any unity. It was it was the unity that Biden had promised he was going to bring. It wasn't unity on everything, obviously, but it was unity on his approach uh, to Ukraine. That's you know already getting chipped away by Republican you know carping on domestic oil and gas production and all of that. But it makes sense that, that, that this makes him more popular, rallying around the president during a time of national 
uh, you know, crisis, a national security crisis. <laughs> the question is, what happens as oil now? I mean, gas, gasoline over four dollars a gallon heads towards five dollars a gallon. Uh, what what happens then? Yeah, I mean, I think the politics of this is very difficult. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Jonathan Carl after this. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. Those with ambitious, out-of-reach ideas begging to become real solutions. They share a vision for how our world and our lives can thrive when bold thinking meets strong silicon. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy through the power of supercomputing. They dream of trust and privacy for all, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to build something better, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. Speaking of politics, midterms, prediction? So I, I think that the Republicans, barring something, you know, entirely unforeseen, uh, will, will... World War Three? <laughs> yeah, maybe World War Three. I mean, something like that. Uh, the you know, Republicans win the House and win it pretty decisively. But here, Preet, is, is I think the most important thing. Uh, is not what happens in November, it's what happens over the next few months. These Republican primaries. There are Republican primaries all across the country where the future, at least the, the near-term future of the Republican Party is going to be decided. Donald Trump is out on a campaign of vengeance uh, to take out any Republicans uh, that didn't sufficiently support him in his uh, efforts to overturn the presidential election. And to go after any Republicans who uh, even hinted at a support for uh, for impeachment or suggested he did something wrong in connection with January 6th. And this is going to be a very interesting process. There are people like, you know, I mean, Tom Rice uh, is, is the uh, one of the 10 Republicans that voted to impeach. He's from South Carolina. He's from he's, he's from the reddest district of any of those 10 uh, that voted to impeach Trump. And. You know, Trump is all in, obviously, supporting his opponent. You know, I think Tom Rice has a chance to win that. Uh, uh, Kemp, Governor Kemp in, in Georgia, uh, Trump had goaded uh, Purdue to get in the race to challenge him because Kemp didn't, <laughs> didn't overturn Georgia's uh, election results. Um, you know, I think Kemp may well win in Georgia. Uh, Lisa Murkowski voted to convict in, in the Senate. All signs point to her. Uh, being on a glide path to to winning uh, the Republican nomination and, and her Senate seat back. And, and there's a lot of, I've just mentioned some of the high profile ones. There are a lot of primaries to watch. I want to mention a, a couple other folks, not in the Congress, but can you explain from a political observer's perspective, what on earth Mike Pence is thinking with respect to his viability as a national candidate? Because he clearly hasn't given that up. Right. 
Does he remember the chanting about the hanging? I mean, it's, it, it is, it is mind blowing. Um, but I think that the way Pence sees the world is he thinks that Trump ultimately is not going to run and will be a diminished force, but there will be this, that will enable him to emerge. What's the logic? I don't see the logic of that. He's closely associated with him until 14 days before the term ended. And now he's a pariah to his, to that base. And can you win the nomination without the Trump base? Is that even mathematically possible? I think what he, the reason why he has been so reluctant to fight back and defend himself on this is that he still imagines that he emerges as the guy that can get the Trump face once it's clear that uh, that, that Trump is gone. But but can we just can we just it was a gallows. There was it was can a we, gallows. But can, 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 can we just can we just pause for a moment though yeah, and, and think please. about this? Uh, Mike Pence was the most loyal vice president in the history of the vice presidency. This is a guy that never uttered a word to suggest there was any distance between him and anything related to Donald Trump. Not during the 2016 campaign when Access Hollywood uh, tape came out. Not after Charlottesville. Nothing. He never, never publicly. And by the way, I don't believe even privately. Certainly not. I mean, I mean, he he was Mr. Loyal. Uh, you know, he may, you might get a facial expression out of the guy every once in a while if, if he thought something upset him a little bit. But he stood by Trump on everything until, like you said, 14 days before uh, the end uh, of the Trump presidency. And then he refuses to, to as an act of a, of a single man, overturn a presidential – I mean, an insane request, an absolutely insane request. And for that, he has made a pri- – and what does that tell you about Donald Trump and loyalty? No, there, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. It flows in one direction and one direction only. And that has always been true. And, you know, there are lesser examples of this. There's Jeff Sessions, there's Bill Barr, there's others who basically did everything for him and they wouldn't do that final thing. There's Chris Christie. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot. You know, Sessions, I mean, th- that was probably the single most important endorsement of the 2016 Republican primaries was Jeff Sessions giving, you know, he was the first significant elected official to uh, uh, to to endorse Trump. And he was the guy that was Mr. Anti-immigration. The first senator, right? First senator. Yeah. And, you know, Ted Cruz was like, was doing everything he could to beg for that endorsement. And then, you know, again, he turns on him. Why? Because he recused himself from something he absolutely had to recuse himself from. I mean, <laughs> there's like... As I often say, it's, it's the one thing that we know for a fact that Jeff Sessions did that was completely ethical, honorable... And marked with integrity. I mean, it's, it's not even, it's, it's not a close call. And that's the one thing that, him, that killed him in the eyes of Donald Trump. Let me mention another person who's also trying to do this threading of the needle or straddling the divide. And I wonder if you have an observation about him. Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> long pause, long pause. Yeah. Um, it, it's easier for him. Like Kevin McCarthy wasn't the vice president, so he wasn't in the position to quote unquote betray Trump by not overturning the election. And he said some things, you know, all these people said some things during the melee on January 6th and the days after. Some of them have stood by those comments, Mitch McConnell to, you know, a great extent. McCarthy not. Is he threading this needle in the way that makes sense for him? McCarthy is trying to do two things. Uh, He's trying to win control of the House for the Republicans, and then he's trying to ensure that he has 218 votes to elect him Speaker once that happens. 
Does he? Does the second thing is the second thing in his grasp? Uh, I think the second thing is likely in his grasp, depending on how big the margin is. But that Donald Trump, he knows that the one person that could jeopardize that for him is Donald Trump. And you know, Kevin McCarthy had that brass ring right in his grasp once before. You know, he was on the verge of becoming speaker, and he lost it by his own his own missteps. And he he does not want to lose it again. He is driven to become Speaker of the House. And he believes that he cannot alienate Trump uh, and still get the 218 votes that he needs to be Speaker. So that creates all these contortions um, because, you know, he's he's really not, he's not a Trumpy. I mean, he's not. And, and that's why Trump will probably go after him. It was during the impeachment debate when he came out and actually said, I mean, I think the best speech of Kevin McCarthy's career, I mean, he was actually passionate and he showed the passion and he said that the president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. Now, he, he, he didn't go the next step and vote in favor of impeachment, but, but you know, he was prepared to support a censure uh, against Donald Trump. And he also on January 6th itself, you know, he I sent him a text message uh, while the Capitol was uh, under attack and said, you know, where are you? Uh, are you all right? What's going on? He got back to me and said he was just he had just been, you know, been evacuated. And I said, can you come on ABC right now? Because we were obviously on live. And it was the first like kind of direct. It was a very direct booking. I literally gave him the number for the control room to call in. And he went on and he talked to George Stephanopoulos and um, and he said that he was begging, he had been begging Trump to get out on television and to address the country and to call the, the you know his his people off. And now you know, I mean, he's it's it's a it's a it's certainly a different it's a different Kevin McCarthy. I wonder if you can answer this question. Maybe it's unfair, or maybe it it betrays something. But you know, a, a lot of politicians have a big difference between how they are in private with no cameras and no recording machines when they talk to their colleagues or they talk to a reporter like you. And there's a difference between how they act in that context versus how they are on Meet the Press or on This Week or on CNN or in public speeches and public fora. And, you know, every politician has a different delta between their private self and how honest and candid they are and and how stand-up they are privately versus publicly. On the spectrum of that discordance between their private and public personas, where is Kevin McCarthy based on your dealing with him? Well, I actually think that some of that has been seen in front of the cameras, that, you know, his, his different positions. I mean, as I mentioned, what he said on January 6th, what he said on January 13th, uh, when, when he blamed the riot on Trump, he has had moments where you have seen that he he really is not, you know, this is not really a Trump Republican. And I think that when you see him come out and very clearly have to have to kind of calibrate so that he maintains the support of his conference, um, he looks he's acting a bit. He looks uncomfortable, doesn't he? I mean, that's why I say. Yeah, and that's why I asked the question. I mean, that, 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 and that's why I say I, I think that the that honestly the best speech that I've ever seen him deliver was that one that he delivered uh, during the impeachment debate because he truly, I think, was saying what he believed. Can we talk about your book, Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show? And 
So there are a lot of scoops in it, as they say, and you're known for getting scoops. And I want to ask you about that and how that comes to pass. What, what is a scoop? How are we defining a scoop so I can ask you about it? <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, uh, it's something that, that, that we didn't know. And, and, uh, and, and no one else got. And that nobody else got. And, and it is significant. It is important. It's not just like, you know, we found out that some, you know, it has to be important. And it's like, it kind of makes you go, wow, I didn't know that, you know? Right. So let me ask you. So when you set out to write a piece or write a book, are you thinking, and be honest, Jonathan, are you thinking, let me get some scoops? And I'll, I'll build around the scoops, or are you just trying to understand what went on with respect to the thing that you are investigating and reporting on? And then along the way, you get scoops and you put them in the book. Like, What's your orientation with respect to the almighty scoop? I think it's a real mistake to say you're going to write a book and build it around scoops. I, I, I think it I think it leads to a disjointed uh, narrative. Uh, I wrote both of my books, uh, you know, Front Row of the Trump Show and Betrayal because I had a story that I wanted to tell. And the scoops to me truly are, are secondary. Look, I have enormous respect for the, uh, look, I'm not, I'm not, it may not, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not the only person that wrote a book about Donald Trump. And um, you're not. Yeah. And, and I have enormous respect for others. I think that some of the best, I think that, you know, Phil, Phil Rucker and, and Carol Lenning are, 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 you know, tops, you know, obviously Bob Woodward is, 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 is Bob Woodward. And, and, and don't, don't share the spotlight, Jonathan. I want to hear about your scoops. But, 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 I, but I just want to say that I, I think that one thing is different about my book from all of them is that it's a story and it builds from the beginning. It's my, this book starts with Donald Trump getting acquitted uh, in the impeachment, uh, the, the first impeachment and the, the steps that st- he started taking immediately that I believe directly led to where we were on January 6th. So this is this is a this is a story and within the story yes there are scoops but the scoops are are not as important about you know the, what it tells you about why January 6th happened and what it means. So how do you get a scoop? Is is there an attribute that you and others have of trustworthiness or do you get your sources uh liquored up? <laughs> how does it happen how does it happen John tell us you, you have to you have to work at it and and you do have to be trusted and you have to gain trust and you have to continue you have to be very persistent there there are different kinds of scoops in this book some of the scoops come in on the record interviews I mean I think one of the biggest scoops was was Bill Barr you know Bill Barr told me stuff on the record uh, that he hadn't ever said before uh, and it was truly kind of holy shit excuse my language I don't know what the podcast you can do that okay no it's all right no fcc issues here do do you want do you want to do you want to explain to the audience yeah the biggest scoop out of bill barr's mouth because i was going to ask about him next because he's much in the news this week too yeah he sure is uh well first of all i knew from the start that he was somebody that i really wanted to get to and i wanted to talk to and uh even before trump left the white house I i had i was reaching out to Barr through intermediaries to see if he would talk to me for the book and i got yeah 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 he'll do that yeah sure you know and 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 not and then months went by and nothing 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 the guy actually lives not far from my house i walk my dog sometimes by his house and i was tempted you know and i probably would have <laughs> if i if i hadn't eventually gotten him but i was tempted to knock on the door which i i didn't have to resort to that but after you know as as my deadline was approaching um, and I'd written much of the book, you know, I, I had reached out to his former spokesperson, to, to some of his top officials at the Justice Department. I finally, you know, I got his personal cell phone and I just called it 
And he answered. <laughs> and he's like, I was like, as you know, I've been really, you know, trying to, you know, come in and talk to you. We do this. He's like, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, how about next week? And I went over to his house and I spent a couple of hours with him in his study and tape recorder rolling, but it was on background, you know, not, not for attribution interview. And it, it was just, I thought it was so significant that I spent the next couple of weeks negotiating with him saying, you've got to let me put this on the record. Um, and he, and he ultimately let me put a lot of it. I mean, the, the really important stuff on the record and the scoops were, he came out and he said, you know, that he had done his own little investigation within the justice department uh, with, with, with the assistance of some U S attorneys into the allegations that Trump had made about election fraud in Nevada, in Georgia, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, in, uh, in Michigan, and that it was all bullshit. And he explained why, he explained how he looked into it. It wasn't just that he had said, because we know that he'd come out in December of 2020 and said there wasn't significant election fraud that would have changed the election. But this was different. He said that he actually drilled down and looked into this and he explained to me how, how and why he had concluded these major allegations that Trump had made were, were total nonsense. And then he described to me in detail what he has now done in his book, I think maybe even more detail with me than he did in his book, you know, what Trump's reaction to all of that. There's a criticism of, of scoops that I'm sure you've heard, and I don't know how much of this has been directed at you, but if you're a reporter, and certainly if you're a member of the actual government at a high level like Bill Barr, and the scoops are internal to you, so that's, I think, a different category, but people will say those things should not be saved for a book and should rather be reported in real time or told to congressional committees or to prosecutors or other authorities when they become known. Yeah. Because that is in the public interest. How do you, what do you think of that? I, I, I heard that a lot after the book came out. Um, so how do you respond, sir? Well, I, I think there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the process. If I were not writing this book, if I were doing my daily job of filing reports, uh, you know, for, for World News Tonight or Good Morning America or for this week, I, I wouldn't have been hounding Bill Barr for months to to get a, you know, an interview um, that would be done without television cameras in his home with my, you know, I mean, it, it's a different process. It's an investigative process. It's much more in depth. And if I weren't writing the book, I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't have learned a lot of this. I wrote, I, I learned a lot of this because I wrote the book. But here's the other thing. With Barr, by the way, I finally talked to him in the early summer. My deadline was late summer. So this was like really late in the process. And it was so significant to me that I did decide I needed to get it out immediately. So I wrote, I, I called up um, Jeffrey Goldberg at the Atlantic and I said, I've got something really good. I want, I, so I, I didn't, this was not, this wasn't the kind of thing that really fits in a minute 30 piece on, on network news. So I, I called the Atlantic and I, I wrote this long article about, about Barr and about all of what he said to me and about the context around it. It eventually became kind of what was the chapter in my, what would become the chapter in my book. But I, I felt- Was your publisher annoyed? Was your publisher annoyed by that? Well, one thing that annoyed the publisher a little bit was that um, the, the Atlantic article made a huge splash and all of the cables uh, were doing stories on it. Uh, ABC did stories on it, but, but you know, 
you know, particularly CNN and MSNBC were, were, were doing stories on it. And they were showing a graphic of the book, but I didn't have a book cover yet. <laughs> so, they, <laughs> so they showed a generic that generic you cover. You got to get that done quick. I know. It was a generic cover. It just said betrayal with a you know white lettering and a black background in my name, and it was like that's not the cover. So uh, yeah, they were probably. I, but but they 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 didn't give me too hard of a time. You know what's interesting? I, I didn't expect the answer you gave quite the way you gave it. I thought you were going to say not that the process of writing a book is the thing that gets me the scoop because it's a different process and you are persistent and you have a lot of time. I thought you were going to say and maybe this is also true, depending on the person, that one of the reasons you get a scoop for a book is because the person is only prepared to speak knowing it's for a book that's not coming out for a while. Was your understanding, is your understanding with a, a subject generally and with Barr specifically? That's entirely true. It's entirely true. Uh, it is true. Okay. Oh, it's, it's, it's entirely true. And also, by the way, you, the, the process of investigative reporting for something like this is you talk you know, to, to one source or one set of sources. And then you use that information to go to somebody else. And then you take that information back and you get, and you build, it's not like, you know, you suddenly come, voila, I got this big scoop. It's, it is a, it is a long process, but there are certain, there's one, in, I'll give you one, I won't give you the names, but I will give you one very specific example. Give us their in initials. I mean, <laughs> their initials and their, just the yes, initials. Yes. As, um, a former Hill staffer, you'll remember that reference. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I have a, a story that is one of the scoops in the book, um, which is Donald Trump on his last day in office, January 20th, as he got on Air Force One for the last flight home, you know, to Mar-a-Lago. He had a phone call uh, from Ronna McDaniel, uh, the, 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 the chair of the RNC. And she was just calling to wish him well. And he lit her up and uh, and said he was leaving the Republican Party. He was going to start his own party. And she said, you can't do that. You're going to betray the people that, that, that worked so hard for you. And she's like, I don't care. And his attitude was, you know, if I lost and everybody else needs to lose too. It's all described in, in, in pretty vivid detail. My sourcing was really, really good on it. And this was an interview that happened – early on, on the condition that it was for the book and it was going to be coming out much later. And let me tell you, the people that I spoke to that described all that to me would never have said, <laughs> would never have remotely given me the information mm -hmm. uh, if I'd asked them at the time of the book, because, you know, it was a different time. I mean, people, I, I really wanted to strike and, and, and do the reporting on this story as much as I could in the immediate aftermath of all that went down at the end of the Trump administration. And, and I include the transition, not just January 6th, but all this, all the crazy stuff that was happening in November and December. So many of my, you know, so I, I did a lot of interviews during then that, that became stuff that I built on because people were angry at Trump. People were upset and they spoke much more clearly than they would now as he still is. You timed it right. Yeah. Jonathan Carl, thank you for spending time with us. It's always good to speak with you. The book is Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. Not just a lot of scoops, but as you say, a very compelling story and an important one. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks again. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to you. My conversation with Jonathan Carl continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. 
I want to end the show this week with a few more words about Ukraine. As you heard, Jonathan, Carl, and I had a robust conversation about the geopolitics, uh, about the domestic politics, and the possible consequences of the conflict. But there's another story, too, or stories, I should say, of people who have been finding ways to help the ordinary Ukrainians who are so badly in need of aid. One especially creative way people are helping has been through booking Airbnbs in Ukraine. No, not to travel there, but to put money directly into the pockets of the Ukrainian hosts that's so badly needed. According to CBS, at least 61,000 nights were booked in Ukraine on March 2nd and 3rd, with 34,000 coming from U.S. customers. The combined value of all of those bookings? $2 million. And Airbnb waived all of their guest and host fees, a spokesman for the company said, meaning they won't profit from the rentals. There are other stories, too. Stories of Germans gathering at the central rail station in Berlin to welcome Ukrainian refugees who may not have any plan for where they're going. The BBC described an entire operation at the station. Food and drinks are handed out, along with SIM cards for phones, medical help for those who need it, and translators, volunteers, and organizers to help too. And there are hundreds of local residents and families standing there, waiting to offer the Ukrainian people a roof over their heads. As the BBC describes, they hold up homemade signs, can host two people, short or long term, says one. Big room, one to three people, children welcome too, for as long as you want, says another. On the platform, a man with a megaphone asked if anyone could take 13 people, and someone stepped forward, as applause erupted in the station. At the same time, something else is happening at a train station in Poland. A photo went viral this week of a bunch of empty strollers left on the platform. They used to belong to Polish families and volunteers who left them there for Ukrainian parents arriving in the new country. And there's another story, one you may not have heard yet, of one couple from the UK who just couldn't stand by as the crisis unfolded. As reported by the Washington Post, Tom Littledyke, a UK pub owner, decided to load up his 16-seater minibus with essential supplies for refugees and drove over 1,000 miles from his home in West Dorset, England, to the Poland-Ukraine border. He and his partner, Georgia Wellman, set up a fundraiser online with the goal of raising about $1,000 and asked his followers on social media for donations to purchase supplies. Within days, they had raised $15,000. Before leaving, they told their community the minibus would be left unlocked in front of their home in case neighbors wanted to leave donations. Within an hour and a half, Georgia Wilman told the Post the minibus was full. Toys, cleaning supplies, sleeping bags, thermals, you name it. Tom made the drive alone to the Ukrainian border. It took him 28 hours. And when he arrived, he saw the grave need for the transportation of refugees from the crowded train stations to the Poland-Ukraine border. So, he switched gears. Instead of just delivering supplies and heading back, he started picking up groups of Ukrainians and driving them to the border so they could cross safely. He made multiple trips and transported 65 people, mainly women, children, and elderly folks. He has since made it back to England and is already collecting donations and supplies for his next trip, according to his Facebook page. And you can check out how to support his efforts in the show notes to this episode. There is indeed a lot of bad going on in Ukraine right now. But all of these stories serve as a reminder that even in the darkest times, 
there are many places to see light. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jonathan Carl. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers.